0: This program is brought to you by Emory University.
1: Well, thank you very much, Laura, Professor Otis, uh, Professor McCauley, for inviting me uh, to come. It's a real privilege to be here, especially this weekend, and to see old friends uh, and uh, to be back at, at Emory, which, uh, in some ways, though it's been 20 years, this work really started here when I took a, a graduate course um, with Leotard on aesthetics and a graduate course on subjectivity with. Uh, uh, Professor Judavitz, uh, and so it's really, great. Uh, it's really great to be here and I don't feel like 20 years has passed at all except that I'm fatter and have more gray hair but this is um, uh, <laughs> this is the way the the world the world works so the work in some ways that I, I've been doing comes out of a, a question which is um, to me a, a somewhat strange one which is that we call all sorts of different things art and they appeal to different senses and they use different means, but something seems to make them cohere. But what's even stranger to me than the fact that we might call music and painting and uh, literature arts in some ways is that the canon of the arts constantly changes so that new arts emerge and we recognize them as art. So there are cultural differences in which we will say, to one culture, um, the arts of flower arranging, in fact, are as significant as opera uh, or rap music or performance art will come in. So how is it, that these different kinds of experiences might be thought to cohere. And beyond that, the question of the sister arts for me becomes a question about aesthetics more broadly. Because it's not only that the idea that different kinds of experiences might be come together to be thought as to be art, but also that there's a domain of philosophy, a domain of, of um, social experience that goes beyond the arts to include landscape, uh, the night sky, human facial beauty, the beauty of if you happen to love cats, um, all the kinds of things that we classify together um, as beautiful or interesting objects. And it's a really capacious, uh, world in which the, even the terminology by which we refer to these varied expe- experiences is vast. Um, and the terminology is constantly changing. The Middle Ages, you would talk about what was sweet, um, uh, what was bitter. Those were aesthetic terms. The terms that we use now are are highly varied. So what is it that brings all of these kinds of experiences together? And. Not only that, but there's another mystery about aesthetics that I find uh, fascinating, which is that as much as artistic canons expand or contract, our own experience of the aesthetic world is highly variable. So that the poster you had on your dorm wall in whatever year you started by the time you graduated, you probably found that taste to be rather juvenile, um, and uh, you would not be caught dead with that Monet, which is what I had my freshman year uh, at any point after that in the James Bond poster. So how is it that your own aesthetic experiences change? And it's not just over a long period of time, but that when you think about your aesthetic engagement, there's a particular kind of time course, your set of time courses to aesthetic experience that are unusual. They have a, a rate of decay, uh, some of them that's very fast, some of them have the rates of decay that are very long, but they seem to be uh, uh, dynamic. So we have this changing group of things that we call arts. We have uh, experiences that go beyond the arts that we call aesthetic. We have uh, changes within our own experience And all of these changes start to make me think, huh, maybe there's something about the way in which we experience the aesthetic that in which this kind of dynamism is crucial, that it's somehow a foundational part of the experience. So the question that I get to is, is there something about aesthetic experience that makes these kinds of alterations not just understandable, but somehow perhaps even necessary? Now, historically, there are essentially four ways that people have thought about the um, connections between the arts. Uh, one, that they might be connected to either subject or their, or their content. Uh, so this might be Aristotle saying that uh, music mimics the voices of animals, that it is therefore it's imitation or rinesis that connects not just music to painting, which is imitative of visual objects, or uh, drama, which is imitative of other human voices. It might be that somehow the form of uh, imitation is what brings the arts together. Uh, so it might be the question of how it is that, that arts represent things in time or it might be the way in which arts are, are, are aimed towards transforming emotion into something else. Um, there's the sense that perhaps it's not the objects, the particular kind of relationships or analogous relationships between artistic objects that unites them, but it might be our responses to the objects that unite them, in which case it's the arts call on our emotions that is fundamental. Um, Or perhaps it is that they all appeal to the imagination in some particular way. That's probably the historically latest or most recent development in thinking about the sister arts that goes to the 18th century. Now, I just wanna lay out, in a sense, as a uh, background, what I think aesthetic experience is. Um, And this is, uh, bring out the howitzers later. You can shoot me for (laughs) any part of this. Um, I'm gonna argue that it's, individual and subjective, uh, I'm going to argue that it has the kind of dynamism that I've been uh, pointing towards, that it is a fundamentally a, a, an integration of ex- perceptions of the external world um, with a variety of internal perceptions, our sense of where we are in our, our bodies, uh, or certainly our senses of pleasure and emotion. I'm also going to argue that aesthetic experience functions by changing the value that we give to what we see. Uh, or what we feel. And that those changes in value then produce new relationships between different objects. And I'll give you some concrete examples of that shortly. But essentially, one way of thinking it might be that when you encounter a work of art, it changes the way that you think about things. And not just the way that you think about things, the way that you feel about them. And those new feelings then can become, uh, uh, change your experience, the way that you interface with the world around you. Um, and that this is a new framework for, uh, for knowledge, that it's not that the arts teach us any facts, but that in changing the way that we feel about the world, they change the entire weighted experience of the world, um, so that you have new emotions or new things that you care about. Who knew, to give a nod to Dahlia, anyone would give a, a rat's posterior about a, a toilet, right, But uh, or urinal. But in the hands of Duchamp, suddenly a urinal has a kind of affective force that it could not have been imagined before that work of art. Um, And this is the um, the kind of short version of what it is that I'm thinking about. So if I were to take those sets of uh, uh, questions and say, what does a neural framework help us to do that a um, more classically humanist version of thinking about these things does not? One, it allows us, uh, as Laura was pointing out, to think about individual differences. Um, it allows us to have a good models for perception, new ways of thinking about emotion, reward, and imagery. And then there is what, for me, has been the, the, the main takeaway of the work that I've been doing, the way that those things can come together uh, in a set of different uh, uh, brain regions that are networked together called the default mode network. And so we'll, all will be revealed in the coming of the next 35 minutes. Okay. So part of this started out with an experiment that I did with Ed Bessel and Nava Rubin at NYU. Um, and we picked 109 images from the Cameo uh, database, which is a database of actual images from museums. Um, we picked ones that were not, they may have been by famous artists, but none of them we actually asked afterwards to really frequently recognize. And we asked our participants to imagine that they were Seeing uh, images of paintings that might be acquired by a museum, the curator needs to know which should be in the permanent collection. And this is entirely based on your own response to it. How powerful do you find these images? They could be anything, they could be hideous, they could be frightening, they could be ugly, but we just wanna know what you feel about them. What's most important is that you indicate what is powerful, pleasing, or profound to you. Then, while they were in the magnet, they gave a one to four ranking of how powerful the image was. And Then afterwards, you took them through the same set of images and gave them these nine um, categories that were some aesthetic, some effective, some uh, terms to evaluate more specifically what they thought about, uh, felt about each of the images. Now, we didn't change the images except to set a maximum size, uh, so we didn't do any color filtering on them. We left them, or artworks vary in their size, they vary in, in what they look like, that's all right. We tried to get a good uh, swath of uh, cultures and periods, and then we categorized them by what were the um, the composition so that we could check back and see if we were seeing significant effects based on any of these areas. And the only thing close to significant effect that we found was that abstract paintings sort of have disagree about them much more strongly um, but they didn't disagree mm-hmm. that's not all that surprising but they disagree quite a lot about what they found um, interesting is it the normal uh, we did a mood assessment there were 16 healthy adults or, or say they told us
2: <laughs>
1: um, now so what do we find um, first we found that people really disagree and I'll show you a, a histogram of this in a minute But so, for if you take people who are highly um, take facial attractiveness, you can have anywhere from about 60% of people, 60 to 80% of people agreeing on facial attractiveness ratings. You'll find between 40 and 60% agreement on landscape, right? Um, Even more if you have more culturally homogenous folks. You'll have 80 to 90% of Dutch subjects, very recently, agreeing on what a beautiful Dutch landscape should look like. We found only about 15% agreement uh, on works of art. And they disagree strongly. This is actually great experimentally. Um, and they also disagree on why things please them. Some people really like things that make them feel sad. Some people really like things that, that make them angry. Um, I think my husband's one of those. Um, but uh, otherwise, I can't understand why he reads what he does. Um, but uh, these variations are very useful because it means that what we're getting when we are doing a, an investigation of the neural underpinnings of response is that because it's not the same paintings that everyone likes, we're not seeing a response to a particular painting, but we're actually seeing the profile of a particular response. And so being able to have people disagree is very useful. Right? If everyone only likes Monet's water lilies, maybe people just like purple. Right? And maybe people just like water, but if one person <laughs> likes that, and another person is very responding very strongly to a landscape, and another person is responding very pro, uh, strongly to a, uh, a portrait, um, you know that it's, the, it's, it's you're looking at the response, not at something that's really driven by the particular stimulus. So this is the histogram of our uh, of our uh, agreement. And actually, I said it was 15. It was between. It was point 13, uh, and you would have expected to see if it was complete agreement. Everything would be shifted over here to the right, but it's hovering pretty close to, close to zero. Right? That people disagree pretty strongly about the works of art they found, um, they found appealing. So what that means is that perception, when we're thinking about aesthetic response, is only going to get us so far, because people were seeing very different things responding in the same way. And that's pretty good for something if you want to have a theory of the sister arts, um, that perception's, perceptions only going to play a limited role even if you're looking at a single visual art form like painting. Now, we found a pretty nice pattern uh, you know, in terms of uh, visual and kind of, uh, to some degree semantic processing around uh, paintings. And you know, one theory that you could have about aesthetic pleasure is that the more of it, the better. Uh, and the brain just responds more and more and more. I like this. Oh, so I like this a little bit more, this a little bit more. And the regions of the brain in which that's true. Um, this is pretty interesting, however, this decrease uh, and the right superior temporal gyrus down in the bottom panel, um, because that's an area that we re- usually associate with auditory processing. And if you've ever been in an MRI, it's really loud, um, it's really unpleasant. You're kind of in this little, this little tube. Um, and the fact that the more people liked what they saw the less the more the depression in auditory processing was actually pretty interesting to me It suggests that um, they're paying less attention to the sound, right? They're more immersed in the object and we'll get to another bit of evidence around that but it was pretty suggestive that even though this is not a museum not that a museum is a natural space for an aesthetic encounter but that in this different kind of space for an aesthetic encounter, something was happening that was um, uh, uh, reasonably like uh, that beast uh, of aesthetic response. So if perception is only going to get us so far, right, what about emotion? And so my working definition of emotion is really that emotions serve to identify relations that matter to us, and they give those relationships a kind of subjective and phenomenal shape. Uh, I'm not suggesting that emotions happen only in the brain. They certainly are somatic, uh, they certainly are social, they're gut reactions or feelings, uh, and they involve tendencies toward not just actions but also thoughts, uh, and this is going back to this debate about aesthetic emotion as to whether or not uh, dating back to Aristotle is somehow essentially different. Are our emotional responses to objects of, of artistic significance different from our everyday emotional responses? Talk about that in a moment, but the main differentiator there in the history of philosophy is the idea that we don't run out of a a, a theater when we see a a frightening play or have a a moment of terror, so the action tendency of emotion somehow seems to be suspended when we're in aesthetic space. Uh, But that idea that emotions have to have an action tendency is probably false, uh, because emotions can predispose you to think uh, as well as to act. You know, you can feel like you want to do something nice for somebody. You don't necessarily have to do it when you're happy. Um, and you can have uh, uh, that kind of a, an action tendency. Um, what I'm particularly interested, though, is the neural reference space for emotion, which is currently being increasingly uh, refined. And again, emotions aren't just in the brain. But there's a neural reference space that's a good starting point for thinking about aesthetic emotions. Now, as I said, the action-thought distinction is, has been historically important, but one of the things that I also want to point out is that when you read a lot of the emotion theory and a lot of, I think, humans who are interested in emotion theory, they tend to rely on the basic emotions of so fear, anger, um, joy to some extent, um, but... There's been a significant amount of work, and I think most of our own experience would suggest that basic emotions are not really sufficient for thinking about aesthetic responses. There's a great uh, piece by neuroscientist in Geneva called Klaus Schauer who took uh, people at a uh, outdoor music festival and had them rate emotion terms to see what were the most uh, significant. And it was a really quite interesting finding because the terminology that they came up with was so contorted to even to begin to come up with nine terms that could adequately describe what people felt. Um, and one of the reasons that Gerard argues that basic emotions aren't enough um, and that people like Nico Friedstedt would probably agree is that the very idea of basic emotion theory may be flawed insofar as it, this suggests that there are motion states that are discrete enough that five of them are fully descriptive. And if you think of an emotion as a complete somatic event, um, the borders of those events are very fuzzy. Uh, and Sometimes even in your own experience, it can be hard to tell exactly what your emotional response to something is. Um, is it terror or is it exhilaration? Those two things can be, um, can be hard to differentiate. Um, but as you look at the kind of neural reference space, it's begun to be assembled around emotional responses, it's clear that there's a good deal of, of uh, overlap between what we find in everyday and aesthetic emotions, but, that, but it's not an identical overlap. And one of the more interesting things that we've found is so you'll see the same set of regions that we normally associate with emotional response or implicated in aesthetic responses, but one of the findings that a lot of uh, has been pretty consistent in garden variety emotions is that there's a hemispheric bias. So that the left hemisphere of the brain tends to respond to uh, positive emotions and be pro- do involved in emotion processing for positive emotions, and the right hemisphere is involved in emotion processing for negative emotions. But even for putatively negative emotions, like fear, you, there's a hemispheric bias toward the left um, for aesthetic processes, which suggests in part that in an aesthetic context, however, we would want to define that. Uh, our emotional responses are being processed as if they were positive, even if they are putatively negative. We savor them. We enjoy them. You can enjoy the fear or the anger or the frustration that an aesthetic experience produces, even the confusion that you're called to when you see something that's really remarkable as a positive experience in an aesthetic sense when it's a negative experience in a classroom sense. Um, Now, what we found in particular, you'll see this, the left hemispheric bias because we're really talking all left hemispheric uh, responses. When we had our nine uh, emotion terms, um, which I re- in some ways I wish we had done the share experiment before this and gotten a better sense of what the the best terms were to find were to use, uh, we used a factor analysis to say maybe these some of these things are picking up the same uh, the same responses. Are these terms really identifying something uh, distinctive? And the answer was that essentially we had a positive and a negative kind of uh, of profile of responses. And so we coded the uh, negative emotions of the cool colors and the positive emotions and the the, uh, warm colors. And you'll notice that yellow, which is all, all works on both sides of the fence, um, that it seems to have these strongly positive and and strongly negative uh, correlations. and that uh, you could see then the set of of regions that responded to the largely positive factor, which is uh, uh, the middle panel on the right, factor one, and to the uh, negative uh, factor. And I'm gonna draw attention to a couple of these right now which are gonna turn out to be important. This one here, the left anterior medial prefrontal cortex, uh, which is the rightmost, uh, and here, uh, the striatum, I, uh, as well we'll talk about in just a minute. Um, You've got a laser
0: Ooh
1: I do. And
2: silver.
1: It hasn't white. Look at that. <laughs> I don't have to be ten feet tall. Thank you. Okay. So one of the things that we found that I gestured toward earlier is that not everyone was weighting emotions in the same way. Uh, and for people, for example, who privileged awe... Ah! I turned it off. Yeah. Press the, no the again. Okay, good. This is <laughs> what I get for using technology. Um, so here on the left, you see a pretty close to, we'll call it a linear uh, response for those folks for whom awe really was a driver in their aesthetic responses, and only for those individuals. Do you see this um, uh, increasing... Uh, Activity in the pontine reticulum formation, which is an area that's largely associated with um, arousal, uh, which is your uh, essentially your alertness to incoming information. Um, For those people for whom pleasure mattered, and not everybody, as I said, thinks that pleasure is a significant aesthetic experience. Some people think it's banal. Why do I care what I like just because it's pretty? For those people, it was um, a region in the left inferior temporal sulcus that was active. So this is just there as a simple demonstration of the fact that aesthetic experience happens differently for different people, and there are different kinds of emotional evaluations that people are carrying out um, that also have neural correlations uh, to them. And this we could look at later if anybody cares. These were the questions. Now, (laughs) beyond that initial pattern that we saw that you like things more, and the more you like it, the more certain brain regions respond, we also saw a different pattern, which was kind of cool, um, which was more like a, mmm, wow. Uh, and that, my mm, wow, I mean, you see pretty flat responses over the first three sets of um, uh, categories of response. Remember, there are only four uh, indicators you can give of how powerful you find the emotion. Four is nice because you don't get a lot of people just going in the middle. They have to make a choice as to how much they like it. Um, and for that category number four, you see significant increases. Um, and which suggest, suggested to us that powerful aesthetic experience was not just more of the same thing. It wasn't just that I like it more. It's something different from mere liking. Uh, to, to rip off of Kant, it's not just pleasure. There is something that happens for only those most significant experiences that is categorically different. So we started to wonder what exactly is it um, that is, uh, is happening for those powerful aesthetic experiences. Now the story that people have been telling about aesthetics and, and neuroaesthetics for quite some time involves something that someone in this room doesn't believe in, which is reward, uh, or at least reward <laughs> systems. Um, but uh, reward, in the terms that I want to use it here, is uh, a significant part of the way that we think about emotion. that um, anything about which we have an emotional disposition, there's going to be a reward or a punishment associated with it. And the simplest definition of reward is that it's anything that you'll work to achieve and punishment is anything you'll work to avoid. Um, And certainly there's a behavioral definition, but rewards have subjective and hedonic components that matter too. Um, There are pleasures of success in attaining what you want. Uh, There are... uh, or fra- failures of frustration um, and uh, reward then helps to uh, drive our emotional economy. It's not the same thing as emotion, of course. Um, there are plenty of ways in which reward and emotion diverge. You know, people who are depressed, right, will cease to be rewarded for their emotional responses. In fact, they'll be actively punished for them. But they'll continue. Uh, anger works like that. You get too angry, you punch somebody, you're going to get hit back. Um, but a reward is a key part uh, of thinking about emotion structures. Now, the earliest neuroaesthetics, really, f- the big finding that they had was that in uh, any time people said that they found something, whether it's music or uh, uh, painting, emotionally or uh, aesthetically powerful, there was an increase in the reward signal. Uh, often, usually, set up between the dorsal and ventral uh, striatum. Um, that you can talk about an aesthetic uh, aesthetic reward value. I should point out that this is a computational value. right? This is not aesthetic value in terms of any kind of, of institutional sense, but purely in terms of a, a neural signal. But what I find interesting and useful about the concept of reward and the way that reward works is that reward is an active part of learning, which is to say that... You, know, uh, the way th- when we think about reward signals, and I'm, I'm now completely nervous after having sat next to a specialist in reward for lunch about even talking about this, <laughs> is that reward us, rewards allow us to compare rewards, right? Um, that the uh, and rewards are also dynamic. So you love chocolate, you find it pleasurable, you get to a point of satiety, right? You don't need to eat in, anymore like water, we drink a lot of it, too much, you're going to die. So rewards have to have a, a way in which it allows us to tell how much the particular reward value of an object is going to matter to us at a particular time. And we can compare reward values across different classes of objects in order to determine what we're going to pursue and what we're going to want at any point in time. So that... Reward in this way allows us to compare things that aren't a priori comparable until they enter into a reward economy. And you can say, I want A more than I want B, or I feel the same way about A and B. And what I think is happening in aesthetic experience is that you are able to find different things rewarding, and think about this uh, in your own aesthetic experience, that your, your playlist, for your uh, uh, iPhone, right, can become extraordinarily generically uh, complex, right, and you'll have uh, uh, some wonderful dance music in the same uh, iPad resource as you do um, classical music. Um, But they are pleasures that are intrinsically comparable, not because they are a priori comparable, but because they became experientially pleasurable in the same way. So that the um, associations between art objects can be built off of the pleasures that you derive from them. Um, And so this has been, in some ways, the basis of work, some of it not so great work, done by folks like Samir Zeki, where they can look at Zeki, things that he has found, a single set of brain tissue that responds uh, to the reward associated with both music and painting. I think he's wrong about that, uh, and I can talk about why. But the suggestion is that because of the the particular pleasures associated with an object, those pleasures become in some ways object moments of contagion. um, And you feel that I like this in the same way that I like that. Does that make sense? Now, like everybody else, we found these nice reward activations. But when I gave you the um, uh, slide a little bit ago where we pointed out the emotional sensitivity, and we see the striatum here right in the middle, right? It's being strongly sensitive to the negative factor, a little more weakly sensitive to the positive factor. When we get here, we're finding this is the striatal region that we're talking about that has this um, pretty nicely linear straddling baseline response. Uh, Now, what was interesting about our reward finding is that it didn't have, it seemed to be pretty much right in the middle of the striatum. It didn't have a classic reward profile whereby there's a dorsal and ventral strial, differing strial response, and one is for wanting, and one is for actually um, attaining the reward, which in some ways makes sense with a static art form, right? that there's not necessarily an expectation of resolution like you can find with music, where when you get to the rewarding moment, you have been waiting for it, and now it comes. Um, when you experience a, a work of visual art, you might expect the reward happens somewhat differently. Okay, so if we're going to think about emotion or emotional responses as being one way in which you might think about the way the arts go here, what about the way we respond imaginatively? Now, I really strongly believe that the study of imagery and neuroscience has not been well served by the dominance of visual imagery and research uh, because And we know why that is, it's the same reason that vision dominates neuroscience in general, because it's a huge part of the brain, is easily behaviorally uh, uh, manipulated. But after spending a lot of time in the literature on imagery, uh, I'm pretty convinced that visual imagery is not prototypical. And most of the times, experience of imagery is not a single sense. Um, It's usually more than one sense. uh, And it often, most often, I would imagine, if you have experience of visual imagery, it is not a thing that's standing still, uh, which makes sense because our experience of the visual world is that it's not a thing that stands still. It's something that moves, and you move in it. And that motor imagery, um, whether it is visual, whether it has to do with uh, uh, auditory world, um, is actually much more prototypical form of imagery than any single particular uh, sense. Um, and we can talk about why that, uh, why that might be. Um, and it turns out there's ev- evidence for the evocation of imagery, especially motor imagery, for every single one of the arts that's been studied. Um, and there's also evidence that this imagery has uh, hedonic effects, that when you experience imagery associated with a work of art, it's usually not neutral, um, that there is either pleasure uh, or displeasure that's associated with it. And to some extent, that makes sense. Why are you going to bother making an image that you don't care about? It's actually pretty costly. uh, And for most people, you actually have to try to do it. And here's my my example that I would ask you to to think about. So there's actually not a circle in that painting, right? There's not a yellow circle in that painting. But one would, most of us would feel that there is one. That circle is actually constructed. Um, and it's suggested by all of the swirls that underlie the Jackson Pollock, but it is not, um, it's not actually there. Uh, it's something that is created Im- as imagery uh, in you and your response to it. And the seemingly static circle is produced by the motion of your eyes following that circle um, and also by your embroidery, the idea that you, your, we assume that there is an interruption in the circle by something that's on top of it, right? a kind of basic principle of vision. Um, so let's take this example from the, the Elgin marbles. Right? Uh, David Friedberg and Vincent Galazzi have done some very nice work showing that there are, um, uh, you can get evoked motor potentials from looking at uh, statue, statuary, uh, and that there are, you um, uh, motor responses, uh, and I don't, I'm not gonna say that this is, these are mirror neurons, I don't believe that, um, but that there are motor responses uh, in the brain that are produced by the, um, in response to representations of human gesture. But here's something a little bit different, and this I'll just ask you to, to close your eyes and, and listen as best you can on my, on my iPad that has so many different strange things on it. Um, to this. least a third of you were actually moving in <laughs> um, one way or another following that beat. Um, and in terms of the way in which we process this kind of rhythmical um, this kind of rhythmical um, production, you're using motor cortex to do the timing. Right? But it's not just that it is motor cortex that's allowing you to do the timing, but it's that you're doing the prediction of when the next beat is going to come. Yes.
0: Can you tell us what you mean by motor imagery? Because mm-hmm. most people think Imagery is sensory, and motor is
2: motor,
1: mm-hmm. so. Um, this is an excellent question. No one has asked me that before. I've been waiting for it for the past, <laughs> the past year, so I'm glad to get a chance to, that, to think about it. Um, so I think it actually makes pretty good sense around music. Even if you are not one of the people who was moving, um, how many of you were essentially doing a version of finger tapping, or foot tapping, or head nodding, even if you didn't actually complete the motion when you're listening to it. So I think that there is a way in which when it comes to something like music, motor imagery involves the um, corporeal feeling of the beat. So that's one way in which I'm using motor imagery. Um, But I think motor imagery also, in terms of the neural level, um, has shown that when people are, if you know this and you're listening to it, you tend to actually uh, make uh, preparations as if you were humming it. That's a kind of motor imagery that goes along with music. Uh, When people are, uh, Horace pointed this out about poetry. We'll get to that in a second. (coughs) That listening to poetry is finding the, keeping the lawful beat. Um, and getting the muscular image of the poem, is the way Imsen called it, that it is imagining when something is going to happen and matching the the experience of the object to your imagined prediction, right? So that when you are, if a beat falls at the wrong point in a uh, poem or in a piece of music, um, you have a missed prediction that is actually, you have imagined when the beat is going to come and there's a failure to find it. And it's not necessarily that it's a tone, right? Because this is the funny thing about auditory imagery, that auditory imagery may be much less fully described than an actual auditory experience, so that it won't have timbre associated with it, it won't have uh, loudness associated with it, it may not even have a correct tone associated with it, even if you're not tone deaf, like many people I know. It really is the metrical expectation that something is going to occur.
0: So are you saying that the reward is the evocation of a motor program rather than the sensory perception per se?
1: I would say that's closer. Mm-hmm. I don't think the sensory that the sensory perception is um, much less important than the match between your expectation and what you encounter.
0: I need to tell you about some old time European
2: ethologist who said exactly that. Oh, goody. Fifty I'm years sorry. ago. Damn. <laughs>
1: or excellent, one way, one way or another. Um, so, this is for the poetry version of this. So, this is one of my favorite poems in all the world, Hawkins' is the Woodlark. Um, and I'm going to just cut down to the, on the interest of time, on the right hand side. Um, it's a great poem. It's imagining what a woodlark would say if a woodlark could talk. Um, and he's flying over all these fields, uh, and he says, The blue wheat acres underneath, and the braided ear breaks out of the sheep. The ear and milk lush the sash and crush silk poppies of flash. The blood gush, blade gash, flame rash, rud red, bud shelling or broadshed, tatter it, tangle it, and dingle it, dangle it, dandy hung, dainty head. And down the furrow dry, sun spurge and oxeye, and lace leaved lovely foam tuft fumatry. So this is full of, of visual imagery, right? Some people are better at it than others. But I think the experience of this poem is producing the idea of motion less out of the idea of waving grasses or poppies, as it is about this just relentless metrical progression that the poem is setting up. That it is the beat of the bird's wings. It's this powerful progression of sound that's pushing the idea of motion that the poem is producing. And against many, many studies of um, metrical speech have suggested that... There are a whole range of motor systems. This is why I say we're not—I'm not talking about something so small as motor neurons, whether mirror neurons, whether or not they really exist—but a range of systems, motor systems that are involved in the kinds of engagement that we have with works of art. Whether it's imagine if you're reading it silently, imagining the vocalization; whether it's keeping time; whether it's having your beating, tapping your finger—that there are broad motor systems that are brought into engagement with this. So. This is interesting to me, Um, and, uh, well, imagery in a single sense, and I really don't like to say that, because even visually, as I said, you you see things moving, we think about our experience of space, it's the timing differences between the signals that you hear in your ears that tell you where something's coming from, Um, but you can map visual imagery onto a perceptual correlate in the brain pretty easily. That seems to me much less interesting than the fact that imagery involves wholesome networks, right? It's memory. That's how enabling you to draw on what you've seen, what you know about the object, <laughs> semantic information that uh, is drawn into, uh, uh, drawn into uh, function. Um, but Moulton and Koslin uh, pointed out that the imagery networks uh, that are involved in producing it really largely map onto the default mode network. So, the default mode network, uh, for those of you who are not uh, so familiar with it, was discovered by uh, Marcus Rakel and Deborah Gusnard uh, in the late 1990s, uh, who were wondering what happens uh, to brain metabolism when you're not doing anything in particular. Because you're looking at the early fMRI studies, and you, know, you might think that you're, if only it were the case, that you think really hard, you're burning more energy. But no, you not getting any better. The total global metabolism of the brain stays pretty constant. And so there's a lot of stuff that's going on. And they wanted to know if what was happening when you did early fMRI experiments was that something was shutting off, not just things were turning on. And that was one of the early statistical questions that that needed answering. And they determined that there were a set of interconnected regions. Uh, It's not just that there are local isolated forms of activity, but that there are areas that are firing together and there's been lots of Subsequent evidence that shows there's a high degree of connectivity between regions in the medial prefrontal cortex, the precunias, um, the posterior cingulate cortex, the medial temporal lobe, uh, and these other regions. I won't talk about them all. Um, And that over the past, I guess, 15 years, there's been a a real interest in figuring out what's happening in these regions um, and what is is going on at the resting baseline for, for brain metabolism. And in particular, we found that their processes that are involved in memory and in the medial temporal lobe, um, certainly uh, what some people call somewhat contestably <coughs> theory of mind our ability to imagine or predict what other people are going to do, uh, but also self-reflection, things like assigning uh, yourself uh, uh, traits, um, mind-wandering, uh, and thinking about the future or thinking about the past. Now... I started off showing that earlier slide where we started to say, hmm, it looks like there's something different that's happening in that case in which you have the the really strong response, uh, aesthetic response. There seems to be something categorically different. So when we went back and looked and said, let's just go back and see uh, at a, without picking out any regions of interest, what the global picture looks like um, for the four cases as compared to everything else. So we took all of the 3 2, one those things that people like, they a little more, they like a little more, and compared those to the 4 case. And what we found was this huge area in the anterior medial prefrontal cortex is going back toward baseline, right? And this is essentially what you see when you are looking at a default mode network activation, um, that when you give somebody a task, this regions and the anterior medial prefrontal cortex and the posterior cingulate cortex they tend to drop off. And that's exactly what we found for most of the art objects that we showed to people. You give them a task, you turn on uh, the, the image, and click, like, and okay, do whatever you've asked me to The task that I'm supposed to do is make an evaluation of this object, so I'm gonna go ahead and do it.
2: But in the case where there was
1: a powerful emotional response, the default mode network at least, and we'll get to this in a second, the anterior medial prefrontal cortex, going right up to baseline. A return toward baseline in the posterior cingulate cortex here, uh, a much shift above uh, in the substantia nigra, and also in the uh, hippocampus. Um, And both of those are, uh, hippocampal cortex, both of those are um, regions, all of those regions in the default mode network. And so this is from something that we've submitted uh, recently that's not out yet. But we're comparing the sort of general, uh, what you see in a resting baseline scan, which are these regions, of the anterior medial prefrontal cortex, and that's the posterior cingulate cortex. And here you can see pretty clearly the um, return to function. So if you look in these areas, here you can see that we've got well below baseline here. Um, and you see as things get a little bit more and a little bit more, it's still pretty, I'm not getting any pointy thingy anymore, um, wasn't pushing hard enough, that we still see these depressions, it's blue. It's, it's below baseline. But here, you're starting to see, compared to rest, a return to function. This is the time course of it here. So that you see image on, right, and then you get a dip, certainly, in the uh, anterior middle prefrontal cortex, but then it rebounds much more quickly for the high-rated art and starts to, in fact, return toward uh, baseline function. And just uh, in June, somebody else confirmed the same effect uh, in the National Academy of Sciences, which made me oh so happy, oh so happy. Um, So it really is, we found something um, that uh, hadn't been found before. And what was interesting is that you saw the anterior medial prefrontal cortex, you saw some PCC involvement, but (laughs) It was not connected uh, in other studies to this um, return to baseline. So what does that suggest to me? I mean, if we have these various pieces of the puzzle that we need a set- uh, to understand aesthetic as something that's dynamic, um, we certainly can understand that through a couple of different things, but one through the way in which reward behavior operates, that um, reward is highly adaptive, that it, it changes over time, um, that we need to have some kind of uh, perceptual integration with some other process, right? It's not just perception, that's perception plus. We've been able to see that. We know that aesthetic experience is highly individually different. We've come up with ways to understand that, certainly through emotional response, but also because of what we know about the functioning of the default mode network, um, that it tends to be um, active most for things that are um, subjective in nature and highly personal in nature. Um, we also know that there is, um, needs to be the potential for revaluation, right? That aesthetic experience has to be refreshed. Um, and we can understand that in part through the, the, the dynamics of, of reward, but also because we know that reward and emotion have to be added to something else. And I'm just gonna dive back quickly to this slide, um, which is, here we go, that when we see these regions, that are uh, most responsive to the emotional components of the aesthetic response, these are also default, besides reward, it's default mode network regions that are responsive. Here, the anterior medial frontal cortex. We've got here, the substantia nigra. We have, um, it's less clear with the, uh, a little bit you see here with the hippocampus, um, and then we have reward regions. And what I think in part is happening with aesthetic response is that there could be two stories that are being told. One possibility is that you see some kind of of summative signal right, in which these areas that are sensitive to the emotional responses, the reward responses, then are moving closer to baseline and therefore um, uh, are primed. For this kind of uh, response, and the most powerful, uh, for the most powerful aesthetic responses, or you could see, and we don't know, um, the obverse of that, which is that it's not that these are setting a threshold condition for the larger aesthetic response, but that the um, engagement of the default mode network uh, is rather a signal that some integration of these responses is already happening. It doesn't necessarily mean that the aesthetic response is what's... Um, what's producing it. So sorry, this blurry thing backward and backward. So I think if the proposition that I start off with the question that I start off with is that is there something about aesthetic experience that makes these alterations not just understandable, perhaps even necessary to the aesthetic, I would say yes. Um, and I think there's a neural framework that enables us to help us understand how that might be. And that's what I've been, uh, been trying to lay out. So the end. <laughs> How extra time?
3: Um, so I'm kind of curious. I've read a fair bit about the default mode network. And one thing about the default mode network is it tends to be sort of overactive in people's discussion. Mm-hmm. And it's also, you know, of course, anti-correlated with the active mode network, that being you know, the case that when you're going to be interacting and sort of engaging with the outside world in a very you know, specific focus, so you're going to have less default mode network yep. work activation. When you're navel-gazing, you're going to have more. So I wonder if part of what's going on is something you suggested earlier, which is when you're taking in art, you're sort of processing it differently, and if you see something truly frightening in the theater, you don't run away like you would in real life, but maybe part of that default mode network activation is sort of defensive, and it's like you're going into a sort of name-gazing mode so that you can engage with stimuli that might be very powerfully effective without actually triggering potentially deleterious
1: action or something. You're putting yourself in stasis in yeah, some way. Kind of That's actually a really interesting, um, a really interesting version of it. Uh, I, I'm not prepared yet to say, what it means. I like that idea very much. Um, it's a kind of off, it's like a kind of offline processing, mm-hmm. which would fit in with the way in which networks involved with, with simulation. But this is one of the things that was really interesting about this is that it's not an anti-correlation, right? Yeah. It's a weird moment where you don't find an anti-correlation between sensory networks. And the default mode network. Usually, when the sensory networks are going, this shuts off. But we had the linear increase, right? And the sensory networks at the same time that we had the return to, to baseline, which is what kind of makes seems to set aesthetic experience apart from other kinds of responses. We just started doing some work with depressive patients um, at uh, NYU Hospital, and we'll see, we'll see what we, what we find. Um, and it's, we've got some depressives. We've got a few schizophrenic patients. Um, and a couple of others, who also have default mode connectivity mm-hmm. issues, yeah. so.
0: We have a visitor who's done some of this kind of thing, so I'd like to call on Dr. Chris Sapien of Neurology, who has done brain scans, people <laughs> looking at art.
3: Yes.
0: Anything anything say about Yeah, yeah but
3: uh, I object to being called a visitor. Because visitor <laughs> is great. <just> it's <brilliant. laughs> <laughs> from the medical school, I don't have an appointment it. in. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity. But, um, I, I wanted to raise a couple of different things. One is I think you could raise a lot of interesting speculations about that default board network activity, which I think, you know, very empirical testing really mm-hmm. forming hypotheses and testing them. One hypothesis that came to mind is that that region has been implicated a lot in self-referential thinking, yes. as, you, mm-hmm. as you pointed out. So it could be that perhaps what you're doing in, in, at that, at, uh, when, when something is especially engaging, is mm-hmm. that you know you're getting self-referential, autobiographical mm-hmm. um, memory kinds of uh, invocations. Yeah. You know, that might be in that, but again, those are mm-hmm. empirically testable hypotheses. Yeah. I want to sort of uh, uh, talk a little bit about your ideas about imagery and mm-hmm. uh, offer somewhat different viewpoint. I mean, to, to me, it's not so much about, and you know, I don't know if my viewpoint's right mm-hmm. or, or not. But to me, it's not so much about motor versus uh, visual. <laughs> to the, the way I think about it is that you know, our, our, our experience is inherently multi-sensory, yes. multi yes. including motor. Mm-hmm. And so it's not surprising that our memories and our reconstruction of our experiences, which is imagery, mm-hmm. might also be multimodal. Yeah. And so I think that's probably, uh, it, at least to me, helps me to understand uh, it a little bit better. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. But one of the things there is that um, one has to be careful about using the term imagery because, mm-hmm. at least for most people, imagery uh, suggests conscious um, generation of a process. You mm-hmm. know, uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, for example, Kasten has argued that that may not necessarily be the case. You might have unconscious imagery that that, if that really uh, is, is so. I, I was struck by your Jackson Pollock uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, picture. And it struck me that perhaps what's going on there is not not classic imagery, but more like what you're experiencing with illusory contours, mm-hmm. like when you see one of those Haneser triangles or yes. squares. Uh, and um, you could argue as well that that's, uh, perceptual or imagery probably does mm-hmm. involve feedback connection from higher order areas, mm-hmm. but probably not what most people would call imagery. Yeah. So I think one has to be rather careful in using
1: those terms. Two excellent points. Uh, I think that you are. Um, I would, part of my insistence on calling it motor imagery is to pull back from the single sensory view, which I think is, is false, is, 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 is just false. Um, and thinking about kind of imagery as multimodal is certainly much more productive. Um, but In focusing on the motor component of it, I'm trying to, and and there are people who think about multimodal imagery as as involving exploratory processes, like Al Manoa and James O'Regan, who argue that the whole point of um, sensation is navigation. Mm -hmm. right? And so that the fundamental premise of all sensation has to be motion. Um, So I'm perhaps being too polemical by insisting that it is motor imagery at the core but I think that it's still, it is that, that the idea that the arts are moving is not just a metaphor. Um, and certainly the case with magical experiences, whether it's music or poetry. Um, and I'm not convinced that illusory contours are not imagery. So one of the most interesting experiments I've read about in the past, Five or so years, is this um, old Conan uh, who look at color constancy, and they argue that color constancy, constancy is largely an effect of imagery. Um, so they take these uh, pixelated uh, grayscale images of fruits and vegetables, and then <laughs> they enable people to add color until it matches. Um, the color that they think it's supposed to be, and then you can measure actually the difference between the color saturation that they've added to it and the the, um, uh, color saturation they think they've matched it to to show that in fact they're imagining color. Um, And that's the the premise that they give for how color constancy works. And what I say in terms of defining imagery is that it's not necessarily volitional, certainly. But it does involve top-down processes rather than bottom-up sensory processes. So when I talk about imagery, that's primarily what I mean. There is a slippery slope there, there, which I think you're pointing to, in that you can call any um, sensory activation and any activation in a sensory region of the brain in the absence of actual stimulation (coughs) imagery, and I think that's probably a little bit dishonest.
2: Um, Pardon? I I'll survive. <laughs> <laughs> I have so far. Uh, I, I, want actually, I have a question, but I just want to make a weigh in for a moment on this issue of motor imagery by mm-hmm. saying that um, dif- diff- uh, different visual formats uh, demand different performances. That mm-hmm. means they, mm-hmm. I have, they demand different uh, viewer responses. That's true, actually, also for poetry, for uh, for music, the underscore, for example, in mm-hmm. music. So perhaps that might be another way of thinking uh, the ways in which uh, uh, visual and motor experiences are actually very closely uh, uh, linked. My question actually, uh, I I was really uh, taken by your remark about uh, the reward systems and uh, the suggestion, I heard a little bit of British associationism in this, uh, and wondering if you would say a little bit more about that, that is uh, that uh, what you see at some level as constituting the aesthetic experience is really this ability to do this cross-modal work and Mm to connect, and I just wondered, if you find any of those 18th century guys particularly useful, just as one might. Kames,
1: anybody? Ideal uh, presence? <laughs> yeah,
2: no, no. I, yes. I, and secondly, also thinking about what you were saying about, I am thinking of Kant and Subreption, uh, the concept that there is always a skeletal format mm-hmm. uh, that we grasp, uh, and that uh, f- the phenomenal skin of the world sort of rides over that what perception is at some level about this kind of subliminal snatching. But anyway, um, do, do you find any of those 18th century philosophies useful to you, particularly? It's it's I keep me warm at night. <laughs> yes, I, I, not, I, I, yeah.
1: I, Hume was right about everything. Yeah, no, I, I don't um, sounded And
2: different.
1: what Hume wasn't right about, Kant was right about. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what I so from the Bohemian angle, I do think that every aesthetic, um, uh, every aesthetic perception involves an assignment of value, and that assignment of value is hedonic. Um, and I think that if you make, claim that if, you cannot claim a dispassionate aesthetic response. Um, if that were the case, you would have an aesthetic response. If I gave you a minute description of uh, a, a, a um, this is Sibley's point, uh, if I gave you a, a minute description of a Bellini sculpture, you would have the same aesthetic response as you do to seeing it. Um, and But we know that it's not just the visual response, that it has to be um, an affective response on, on top of that. Um, so, in terms of the, the question of, uh, this will be another 18th century moment coming out. If you were to imagine, for example, hearing kind of music that you don't understand as music, right, and this is not just my mother, in the back corner, saying, What's
2: that you're playing on the radio? It's terrible. <laughs> um,
1: but it is a, 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 a powerfully culturally decentering moment, right? Where you hear as music, the first time you hear it, say, a, a diggeridoo, right? Um, that, that cannot possibly be understood as music because it doesn't activate the affective responses that you're accustomed to having with music. It's not recognizable within the affect space and the hedonic space that you associate with music. It's only when you have learned something about that music and can relate it to other musical forms that it enters into the world as music. Um, And I think that that is fundamentally about how it is the arts accrue together, right? And that this has historical differences. So at a certain point, if, if music has a primarily religious sense in one culture, it's not felt aesthetically in the same way because it doesn't produce the same set of rewards and things that are said identified viable as aesthetic pleasures. And it's only when you are trained into that space that you can come to find them appealing. That's being trained into a Duchampian space. It's being trained into a Kitsian space. It's being trained into, you know, Tai Twombly. And that training happens in part by semantic associations, but it also is a training in pleasure. Uh, and that is, you know if you look at the the uh, way in which you are brought into a music a work of music, it is training you in particular pleasures that go along with that musical piece. Um, and that's a process that happens over the first twenty bars of a piece. Uh, it's a process that happens in a gallery when you are introduced into the space of what one thing follows another. and that's the, that's the kind of the, uh, reward association. And they don't just come from no anywhere. and this is, or nowhere. And this is where I also, you know, I have an axe to grind, which i not grind happily, about some of the reward, uh, looking, reward literature looking at, at aesthetics. And this is that it assumes that reward is going to function the same way in all sorts of different experiences, right? And that once we understand how reward works with drugs, we know that how reward works with money, and we know how reward works with painting because it's all, you know, just reward, right? And, but what's interesting about it for me is that you can make an a priori prediction about a lot of kinds of rewards because they're evolutionarily determined, right? You can just say, yes, I know that this is going to be a rewarding stimulus if this person is healthy, okay? But you can't make that kind of prediction about aesthetic responses. And we saw that, you know, such a tiny amount of agreement that people have. Even, and this is the important part, these were real museum images. It's not like junk I pulled out of my pocket. Right? Assuming that you have competent collectors at University galleries and the Louvre places. right? So not being able to a priori predict what these rewards are going to be, that suggests that there might be, to me, just going into it, that there are ways in which reward might be functioning differently and aesthetic responses than in other responses. And those are questions we just don't have the answer to. And the fact that we didn't find that this classic ventral dorsal strial response mm-hmm. suggests to me that there's something different that's going on. Is it only for visual art? Do we need better work looking at the more temporally extended arts to, to be able to sort that out? I think mean, that's a, that remains to be seen. Um. So that's
0: a mechanical question. was mm-hmm. uh, an excellent and exciting research. Okay. Thank you very much. So your, your population was 15. Okay, so... So in that 15, did you control for handedness? Uh, and, and then I'll go to the next thing yeah. if you did,
1: right? We, were main, we had a lot of lefties in this group. Um,
0: right, and so what did you assume about the lefties?
1: We didn't assume anything. Yes. We were able to, what we did was we allowed them to use either hand for making uh, their responses, but we didn't make any assumptions about yeah, we had thir- 11, 16, 13 were right-handed, so we had three, three lefties.
0: So can I, can I mm-hmm. just go further with this? Often we assume that left-handed person is the dominance for languages on the right side, but that's only true of 18% of left-handers. Mm-hmm. And 5% of right-handers um, turn out to be right-brained in yeah. terms of language, so they're actually more, more right-brained um, right-handers than there are... Left brain right handers. Although if you want to do a population at risk, it's easier to use left handers, you mm-hmm. have an eighteen percent chance of coming out. So, so you a lot of your findings, as I saw them, yeah. were lateralized. So, mm-hmm. so it so it's, it seems to me that we want to know the information about your population on a mechanical level, mm-hmm. because it you could ha- you could be thrown off and and in lots of different ways, yeah. right? Especially when you so so how are you going to take that into consideration
2: well um
1: so two things could happen i mean we could rerun the statistics and kick all the lefties out um
0: but the lefties may but be the right lefties brain. but the lefties may be yeah fact, yeah. the chances are they are
1: we've seen they the same kind of lateralization, not just in this study but in other uh neuroesthetics work um so while we didn't want to draw any conclusions on the lateralization based just on our group, it seems to be holding up in the studies that others have done. So I get <coughs> to the point that without being able to have, uh, to do, so so what you're saying is that what we should have done was instead of just doing object localizer, we should have done some um, investigation of, exact, of general processing, lateralized processing in each of the individuals. Before we went forward. The
0: reason I'm asking mm-hmm. is you're about to move on to psychiatric patients.
2: Yeah.
0: Right? And so mm-hmm. we did a meta analysis of all the autism and left handed studies. Mm-hmm. This, that's what you're suggesting mm-hmm. you do a meta analysis, right? So we had 154 studies that looked at handedness and autism. Mm-hmm. But when we had to look for reliability, did they use the same definition? What do they, yeah. yeah. they mean by autism? What do they mean by left handed? How do they collect it? It turned out for reliability to, to actually do a meta analysis of 154 since the year 2000, only two were reliable. Huh. So I'm just suggesting yeah, that if you're going point. to go into this study, you ought to make sure that your data is reliable. So yeah. you could scan ahead of time, you could just use a transdoppler or something mm-hmm. to know where language is in your population because with such a small end, it'd be easy to be thrown off.
1: That is a, an excellent point. We're still, we haven't moved to scanning yet for the, um, Making a note uh, for the uh, for the psychiatric patients. Uh, We're still doing the behavioral for them, so we still have time to think about it.
3: We have time for maybe one more question. You can. I can. (laughs) Well,
2: Barbara. (laughs) Okay. This is this is a comment and a thought. I'd be interested in in your response to it, so we can hear. From a writer's workshop I was recently at, um, they defined literary fiction, which is kind of hardworking and creative fiction, as as having language that makes you think about the possibilities of what language can do, uh, as opposed to genre fiction, which is more formulaic and meets expectations. So in relation to some of the things you were saying about um, aesthetics, what I'm wondering is, um, is there a pleasure to, Learning aesthetically, you know, is there a hedonic value to being surprised and reconfiguring? Yeah.
1: So it's a, a fascinating, a fascinating question. So there's a guy, a couple of guys who work on musical expectation, mm-hmm. uh, Huron, David Huron, and Temporly. I do not know what first name is. Um, but so it, it's probably the mo- most significant for thinking about music, right? In which um, most musical theorists will say that true novelty in music is really unpleasant. Uh-huh and that it's about, um, you can still be surprised in music, but the way that it works in music is, uh, they're arguing through something called contrasted valence, in which you set up an expectation which you fail to meet, which produces tension, that when you meet the final resolution, where what you expect actually matches what you um, experience, then by contrast, Um, With the failed resolution, the the, the ultimate resolution is more powerful. So that surprise in that way functions as frustration. Um, And they're trying to make this argument in part because most of the time surprises are bad, surprises are what we don't want, surprises get us killed if we're monkeys in forests. Um, And uh, that in order for a surprise to be pleasant, something has to have been, have prepared you for it in one way or the next. So... When I think about this um, musically, I think about this with bluegrass is a really great way of, of experiencing it. Um, I don't know if I can find it really quickly, there's a great uh, bluegrass music. If you ever hear it, it just it kind of sounds the same, right? Um, but it sounds the same purposefully right? because it's this particular kind of rhythmic cycle. And then you were talking about the backstep movie mm-hmm. earlier that you introduce a backstep, in which the two musical or two or more musical instruments move out of time. Right, and they're each going in their own time signature, and then at some point they come back together. Right, so that you get this disruption of what's predictable. In order that if you are adequately following the original beat when they come back together, there's the consummation of that imagined experience with the perceptual experience, and that's why the, it's very it's highly artful form. It's extraordinarily, you know, virtuosic performance that enables that to happen properly but it is that coincidence with what you have predicted based on how you've been prepared within the piece and the piece meeting those expectations. So it's not um, meeting it in terms of a stale generic formula, but that it's being able, the work is able to meet the own expectations that it produces in you.
0: County Star came down here this weekend to see family and old friends and have a lot of fun. <laughs> and, um, <I'm> <laughs> and Van uh, but I think that she needs to understand that she has also met new friends and given us a lot of fun. Thank you very much. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.